Hi, and welcome to this special episode of Rocket Fuel, which will be the first in the new series where I'll interview prominent members of the Rocket Pool community. And the first person that we're starting this series with is Marceau, who, as you all know, is the most active whale in the Rocket Pool community. Um, Marceau is famous for his bullish comments of the day and his general permeable um, position uh, that's really infectious for everyone in the community and like it really brings a lot of positivity to the community so um this will just be like um quite a friendly call um it's not too serious and that's kind of the tone that i want to go for with the series where you know we just chat to people and um kind of share ideas and perspectives and maso definitely has some really interesting ones so maso i'd like to welcome you to this call and say thank you so much for being my guinea pig and my first <laughs> my first participant here today yeah my pleasure thanks for having me you should at least yeah. ask one or two hard questions that's only fair oh okay i can ask some hard questions <laughs> i can try but, i like hard um, questions okay well let's let's see what comes up over the course of the call and we'll go from there but um i guess before we get started um why don't you tell us a little bit about like yourself like who you are and like your story about how you ended up here in this call today <laughs> yeah um let's see this sort of short version is i've been in crypto since about 2011 i sort of first got introduced to it i had a boss at my software company who was um really kind of keen on bitcoin mining this is back when bitcoin was kind of the only shop in town there's a few other kind of alternatives but it was mostly bitcoin and he was kind of mining Bitcoin under his desk and started kind of pitching me about how this is, you know, a new form of currency. And he had kind of like libertarian and political roots in it. So it really resonated with him. And I thought it was interesting, you know, for what it was. I think, I think Bitcoin is cool or was cool as sort of a payment layer, but it never really like clicked for me. And never really, I never really fell in love with Bitcoin. I mean, I held some, I was mining some a little bit here and there, but like, it's, you know, application as a currency didn't seem super interesting to me. Um, and it wasn't really, I didn't really get into the space kind of deeply until 2016 when Ethereum came out. I was a little bit late, you know, I wasn't part of the Genesis or anything like that, but I started really reading closely about it and thinking about crypto and blockchain as sort of like an application layer and my background is software. So like it just immediately kind of clicked to me, like this is, this is a means in which you can build applications. It, it gets much more interesting than just kind of payments, which is cool, but not kind of that cool to me. So I started just reading about all the different projects that were going on um, and getting excited about it. And then I, I started playing around meaningfully in about 2016. And I even kind of did this at my, at my job. I was at, then at a different company, but I was um, part of this very quickly growing kind of crypto community at my job. It's one of the bigger kind of tech companies out there. And in 2017, it went from about 12 people <laughs> getting lunch together to about 3,000 people very quickly with, with the boom. And then I started doing some stuff internally, some of the kind of inner kind of corp dev and, and blockchain stuff. And just, it kind of became like my hobby, my job, everything I sort of like cared about. And then I left my job and I started kind of doing this sort of full time. But anyways, like I'm I'm really a believer in sort of Ethereum as the, as the L1 king. I'm really a believer in staking as the way that sort of Ether expresses its value. I think liquid staking is a really sort of interesting application of that. I think Rocket Pool obviously is like the best product in the market. So there's like a whole lot of like nested theories that kind of get to Rocket Pool and get to like us being on this call. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's been a fun journey. I think it's really interesting to see the fundamentals and the growth happen at the same time as the wild speculation and the bull and the bear markets happen. Cause you get such dramatic kind of peaks and lows and we're kind of in the lows right now, <laughs> but it's, That's it's me. just, a, it's a fun space and I've never been bored like a day just exploring this. I, I learn more every day. Um, and it's, it, it's a fun community to, to be part of. That's really great here. So, um, one thing you didn't mention in that was like how you heard about rocket pool and like, where yeah. like when you first got involved in like buying the token maybe getting involved in the community like what was the order of things that happened there yeah i mean i, I heard about rocket pool in 2017 there was a lot of icos and i followed a few of them i didn't participate in the ico but i was tracking it i thought it was an interesting product um i i really started thinking about rocket pool in kind of like early 2020 I, I started thinking pretty deeply about the merge and how that kind of catalyzes ethereum's value and how staking is really its its way of expressing value and i was getting really excited about the merge and the sort of like downstream economic changes from that um as in staking and rocket pool just like very quickly stood out as like a really great way i, I think it truly kind of is a win-win for the marketplace in terms of like token holders and node operators and we can get into that too but I started, it's kind of became part of my sort of crypto staking merge thesis. And I started paying attention in about, it was like late 2020 by the time I actually started like getting kind of serious about it. I, I started buying pretty heavily around around then. I was kind of careful because I was moving the market at times. So it was sort of like a slow process. I was, I was invisible for quite a while. And then it wasn't really until I started becoming a node operator that I figured I should actually probably create a persona and, and be part of the community instead of just kind of like a passive kind of watcher. So that's, I kind of entered the community as, as Marceau and I've been, uh, you know, participating ever since then. So I guess you did that when you actually started staking then? Yeah, I think I, <laughs> what happened was I created a bunch of mini pools yeah. and then there's all this chatter in discord like what the hell's going on who's this guy and at the time it was a big deal like now i'm not that big of a of a player no. but back then it was like kind of a big splash and yeah. so i felt like i needed to kind of like at least somewhat de-anonymize and just be there to, and if nothing else i needed to like ask questions i wanted to connect with people i wanted to just like become a known quantity so that's kind of when yeah. it went to be like semi-public so one of the great things about the rocket pool community that i found is we actually have a bunch of like whales, quote unquote whales, who are really active, you know, and it's really great to see that. So Thomas, obviously, for a while was like the biggest staker who people know about him and like, no, he comes and chats in Discord with us. Patricio obviously was like the biggest holder of the RPL token and he was in Discord quite a lot like over the years. Um, now we have um, Marco Barco, who's pops in once in a while, and Meek, who, you know, was one of the big people in the beginning, at least, you know, when you started staking as well, he was, I think, the second biggest or the biggest staker at the time um, around that time as well. So it's really great that, um, like, you know, you guys are all part of the communities, but do you like have whale chats and kind of like talk to each other about like whale things? How does that work? Um, I mean, not really is the honest answer. Like there, there's some chats about things that are sort of like specific um like there's one chat where there's some otc trades that gets kind of talked about but it's it's really like not interesting to be honest i mean yeah. I'm, I'm i talk to all these people like one-on-one -on -one. like i'm super friendly yeah. with with thomas and and meek and and marco and everything like that so like it's all like tight-knit and, and everyone's friendly with each other but there's no like cabal of of secret stuff <laughs> kind of going on if that's kind of what you're thinking i mean there is a chat but it's like it's super uninteresting i probably promise 
you can let me join it and I can make a daily summary. <laughs> <laughs> but um, okay, that's cool. So one of the things, like one of the reasons why you're the first person to come into this um, uh, interview today and like this chat today is because you were actually, like, we've met in real life, right? We've met three times. And the second time we met, um, I was in the process of like quitting my job and moving and you, I mentioned to you about how my wife was like, you know, start a YouTube channel and you kind of gave me a little bit of encouragement about that. So it was really cool that, you know, you met me, a total random stranger in like a restaurant in the middle of nowhere. And like, you've done that a bunch of times. How does it feel to meet people um, like away from discord, like in real life? Like, how does that, how does that work? Yeah. You? And you didn't wrench me. Thanks for that. Um, yeah. yeah, it's cool, man. It's it's fun. Like I I've had a few. Like I was in a different city a couple months ago, and I just kind of recently moved. And I met with a few folks back at my at my old location, and then I went to HodlerCon and met some folks like Ken and Wander and Nickass, and that was a ton of fun. And then yeah, here you know met you and a couple other folks a couple times. It's it's really cool. Like it's it's it humanizes the space. I think it makes it just fun to put faces to names. It makes it kind of sort of personal to talk about like what interests you about this how did you get involved in it you know what is what are your what is your honest take on things and it's it's a higher fidelity conversation like discord is great but it's just text it's sort of like low fidelity so i think it's fun just to you know get a beer spend a couple hours just talking about things It's it's a much richer kind of conversation and i think you can actually like express a lot more like information density um so i have a really good time doing it um there's a few other ones i have planned i I really want to go to like new york to to buy patches of beer because he probably <laughs> he's earned like 10 beers from me of and course. a few other places um but yeah no it's it's super fun i mean anyone who is is kind of skeptical like i i get it but i think it's 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 an experience it's fun like crypto is sort of weird because it's this very kind of like virtual community and it's like yeah. online and it's text-based and it's sort of like i don't know how to, how to describe it like less than human less than a human experience but like yeah. having that real life experience i think makes it just very different and very fun and very real so one of the things that, you know, you see in the crypto community a lot is like this huge emphasis on like, you know, psyops and like not being doxxed and like keeping everything secret and safe and all that kind of stuff. Like, do you ever worry about any kind of stuff? Because like a lot of us in Discord, right, like in the Rocket Pool channel, we know like at least a chunk of your net worth and we know that it's staking so withdrawals aren't available so even if someone went at you with a wrench you know they couldn't take anything from you but do you ever have that fear or anything like that that you know sure yeah, yeah i mean you know it's it's something it's it's healthy to be to be at least moderately paranoid um yeah. and yeah it's something i think about and it's something that i've taken sort of specific actions to like you know make sure there's not a make sure there's not a target um you know, I won't get into any kind of specifics, but you know, sure. I'll just leave it at like the fact that I've thought about it. I'm not, I, I feel like I'm protected from sort of like every kind of situation that could possibly exist. So it's, it isn't some, it's not something that I lose sleep over. It's something yeah. that I kind of like every once in a while, I'll think, I'll think about and kind of just take a temperature on if I'm doing the right things. If I have, if I have any kind of like vulnerabilities I should be thinking about, yeah. this is true from like a network kind of security perspective and, a, and an IRL perspective and, and everything. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's prudent to to be a little paranoid and to think about certain things. But it's not something that I like obsess over. Um, and I, you know, in general, I think people get worried about this, and some of it's justified, but some of it is kind of overblown too. Like, you know, it depends on everyone and their circumstances and their level of risk and and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I think to some degree, it's a little bit overstated. 
Yeah, that's that's what I've noticed as well. So um, since I started making rocket fuel, like my face has been out there and like, um, obviously like I'm, so when I met you, I met a couple of other people from Discord as well. And like in that time, and that's the first time that people like actually know my name. And um, now they kind of like have an idea of where I live and all these kind of things that, you know, I once upon a time I might have thought was like really scary now that, you know, I have some securities in place for my crypto and like stuff. And I kind of like, I guess what you do as well, like, you know, taking precautionary measures, I feel like, you know, my name being out there is not as big a deal. Like there's a lot of people who are in the rocket pool community, but also in like the crypto community at large who have tremendous net worth and everybody knows their name and where they live and everything about that. Like even Vitalik, right? Like he travels around the world and like, he doesn't have a huge security entourage or anything like that. And yeah, anyway, I'm just kind of rambling there, but um, <laughs> I think um, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot as well, you know, because like my face is out there now, people have an idea of what my name is. Um, my wallets are easily findable. Um, it's not that difficult to kind of piece together what my crypto holdings are and all that kind of stuff. But um, I guess like you, I'm just taking it as as a, getting a temperature check, right? Of seeing what I'm doing is the right thing or not and trying to go forward with that. But um, yeah, I think um, I gained so much by like meeting up with you in person and the other people that I met up with so far um, that it's been really, really valuable for me. And like I said, if it wasn't for the fact that we'd met up, like I might not be making this station right. It's a channel might not exist. And that's, I know it's giving you a lot of credit for that. Yeah, like, I mean, I'm flattered. Yeah. You're giving me a little too much credit, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I'm yeah. happy it worked out. Yeah, it's been, it's been, and really it's been super experience. cool, by the way, to see like Rocket Fuel has actually gotten a ton of adoption. It's, it's super loved by the community. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been really happy to see the level of kind of engagement you've gotten. And now you're doing the ETH Finance thing and, and yeah. different kind of interview styles and stuff. It's really cool. So I'm, I'm yeah. super happy to see that. And Mav, who uh, works for Rocket Pool, obviously, was saying that I'm becoming a YouTuber now. So <laughs> I'm just going I to. I can't like, wait to I'm see gonna... like the videos of you with the thumbnail where you're like, you won't believe what Rocket Pool just did. <laughs> I think Bosi was sharing that in trading last night, saying like, <laughs> it's two weeks before I start making those. Yeah, please don't, please don't do that. That's terrible. I like, so for me, <laughs> one of the things that, you know, I brought to this channel is kind of like my personality, right? A little bit of my personality. And part of my personality is that, you know, the ideals that I have are quite aligned with crypto or like Ethereum. And, you know, I'm not here to shill anything. I'm not here to sell anything. I'm here because I'm part of these communities myself, just like you're part of this community. So, you know, I wanted to give something back. So a lot of like, for you, people see you kind of like as a figurehead in the community and like you do a lot of work for the community and for the protocol. Can you tell me a little bit about like the kind of things that you've been spending some time on recently and like how that's been going for you? Yeah, I mean, it, it varies a lot. It's kind of scattershot. Um, I I just try to find ways in which I can be sort of helpful. And that could be anything from just like being an active member of the community. I, I talk to a lot of whales kind of one-on-one -on -one just to kind of help get them integrated. Sometimes they have different questions. Like there was one guy last night who was asking some questions about how to get kind of a staking operation set up. Um, I try to kind of push things along where I think we need nudges. And this is to sort of mixed success. Like part of it is sort of like pushing on DeFi integrations. Part of it is pushing for things like liquidity incentives. Um, but I try to find 
you know, what I think are bottlenecks and just kind of create awareness of them and to whatever degree I can just sort of like nudge things forward. And that kind of runs into tension sometimes with, with different people in the community or the team. And, and that's sort of okay. I'm, I'm happy to be a little bit of a, of a, a person who nudges things. Um, another thing I've tried to do recently is like, just kind of be public on Twitter. Like, I think our community is interesting in that it's so vibrant and rich and like, interesting and eclectic but it's also so um what's the word i'm trying to think of like it's very kind of within discord it doesn't really like there's not a lot of like outreach sometimes it'll bleed over to like reddit but like we're not really out there creating this like public brand trying to get people aware of what rocket pool is and why it matters and why people should pay attention to this and i kind of saw that as a little bit of a gap and actually super fizz kind of nudged me towards like we're being a little insular as a community like we should go and promote like externally. And that kind of, you know, gave me some motivation to create a Twitter account. And I'm like, not very good at Twitter, but it's actually done okay. And just kind of create some threads and create awareness of things. Like I was really happy with, it was that one thread I made about kind of rocket pool scaling, which I felt like it was just such a informational asymmetry between where I think rocket pool is going and, and can succeed in scale and what the market sort of like thought of it, because it has some of it written off. And I was happy to see that post just like get a lot of traction and a lot of awareness, but like, yeah, Rocket Pool is like doing some amazing things as far as scaling. And, you know, it's, it's like a slow rolling snowball or whatever, yeah. just, you know, it starts off slow, but then it gets bigger and bigger really quickly. And, and it kind of catches you by surprise. And so I think the market has just sort of like assumed that this is a winner take all market that has been sort of like won or lost. And I think the, the reality is that we're just getting started and there's a lot of things yet to happen. I, I kind of, one thing I say occasionally is like, I think we're just playing in a sandbox. You know, we've just been like growing and building Lindy effects and it isn't until the merge. And I think even more importantly, when withdrawals happen, that things really get kind of interesting. So I think we're just sort of like building credibility, building our technology, scaling up slowly. And then it's just like things I think will, will take off dramatically. Um, so it's, it's a game of patience, but anyways, I'm trying to just create awareness of some of these things and just find ways to participate and add value wherever I can. But it, admittedly, it's a little bit scattershot. Um, I'm trying to still find a way in which I can add sort of unique value, like like what am I uniquely good at? Because um, I'm not like the best person at DeFi things. Um, so anyways, I try I to help out wherever I can. One thing that you've done really well is like being a whale whisperer, right? Like, because people see you as like a fellow whale they kind of listen to you in a way that they wouldn't listen to me or like anyone else in the community like because maybe they see you as one of their own in a way like if, does that make sense like when like one of the things that you got involved with was the patricio and marco barco whale marriage and that has been a huge boon to the community like they've they've locked up literally millions of rpl tokens and thousands upon thousands of eth and running hundreds of mini pools and it really has added a lot of value and excited like made the community really excited i think that kind of thing is really unique for you you know like i don't think anyone else is doing that in the community like like i said there are other whales in the community but i feel like you kind of like bringing them together and you kind of become a touch point for them does yeah. that make sense yeah thanks i appreciate that i mean yeah. I, I'll give myself a little bit of credit here. Like I'm, I'm a little hesitant to take too much credit since I think people are smart and they figure out these things anyways. And I just mm -hmm. helped connect the dots a little bit, but you know, yeah. I would say the two things 
that I'm probably most proud of that I've contributed towards is the the whale situation like you described, mm -hmm. which I think both is meaningful just for what it is, but it's also meaningful because I think it sort of proved this, it proved the desire for the SaaS model and for there to be this type of arrangement where you can have different counterparties joining up and creating nodes in interesting ways. And I think that gave a little bit more emphasis to the SaaS design that's coming out, which I think is super cool. Um, and I think that was going to happen anyways, but I think just for the team to have seen the sort of like excitement and the ability to do things like this whale marriage was, was kind of cool and gave some credibility to that strategy. Uh, I, was, I was happy with how that came out. I'm really happy they're, they're both participating in such a meaningful way. I get yeah. excited every time I see people blow up events. It's, it's exactly, it's kind of cool. And the other yeah. thing that I'm, that I would say I'm like kind of proud of is the LED and the less ETH bonded mini pool discussion. we can get into that if you want to, but I think that was such an important uh, directional decision for Rocket Pool, and I'm I'm really happy that it it, it landed where where it did for for a few different reasons. But yeah, that was another yeah. one that I'm happy with. So I think that actually is a good transition for us to actually start talking about um, Rocket Pool uh, as a protocol and Rocket Pool as a token because you kind of hinted at a couple of things there about you know SaaS model and LEBs, um, which is a new kind of mini pool that will require fewer ETH to be put forward as a collateral by the node operator. So the right now, the node operator and the our ETH holders have to provide 16 ETH each, but under the new system, and I guess, you know, there's going to be further iterations on this, but it's looking like the node operator will provide eight ETH and then the, the our ETH holders will provide 24 ETH. So, um, before we actually start talking about that, why don't we take a step back and talk a little bit about what it is that Rocket Pool does that's unique on the on the staking liquid staking front and why like over overall like kind of like a high level idea of what <clears throat> makes it like the best product in the market? Yeah. Um yeah, let me think of how to start that. Um I mean let me just, I guess, take another step back, maybe. Starting with like Ethereum staking. I, th I think staking on Ethereum is a big deal and has has potential for the pie to grow a lot. So we're at something like 14 million ether staked. I think we're eventually going to trend up to something like half the supply staked. There's a lot of room for growth. Um, it ha we've had fairly low staking participation compared to other chains because A, there's a lot of just execution risk in terms of landing the merge, landing withdrawals. That's fine. I think it'll tick up from here. And also just because with other blockchains, there's not much to do with the tokens, right? Like it's, there's not really a rich ecosystem to like play around in like there is in Ethereum. So there's, there's a utility in Ethereum that makes it much more desirable to just hold Ether, um, which I think has held back some of the staking because people can, you know, do more interesting things with, with Ether than just staking it. St staking is kind of boring at the end of the day, right? It's just, it's a way to lock up your funds and get a very kind of low nominal yield on what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, in my head, that kind of segues into liquid staking really, really elegantly, because I think liquid staking is the way that the marketplace solves that dilemma. People can then have the best of both worlds. They can have the liquidity and be able to play with the sort of rich Ethereum ecosystem that they want to do, things like DeFi, things like collateralized lending and leverage and stuff like that, and still capture the staking yield. So they don't have to sacrifice liquidity to, to get that yield. Normally staking is a trade-off, right? Like you give up your liquidity, and you get a yield. And that's makes sense for some people, but not for others. Liquid staking like is win-win for them. 
And I think liquid staking really fills the gap and will create the growth for Ethereum to go from 14% staked or whatever it is to 50% staked and you know enable those people to still do what they're doing by playing in DeFi. Um, and there's a bunch of reasons they wouldn't do that, but I think all those reasons are like kind of going down to zero over time. Um, it's like smart contract risk and yields and, and things like that. Um, so like, I think liquid staking is super cool. And with Rocket Pool, I think your question was specifically like what makes Rocket Pool like the best kind of product for this? Um, it's just clearly filling a segment that has a lot of demand, I think, and no real competitors. And that's going to sound like a pretty crazy thing to say, but like there's no other purely decentralized and trustless and permissionless and non-rent seeking and non-censorship applying protocol for staking than, than Rocket Pool. And I think Ethereum really needs and deserves a protocol that can that can enable that like rocket pool and ethereum they're kind of like ethos align so perfectly and it's just such a natural fit and i think the community really wants and needs and deserves that um there's a lot of other staking providers don't get me wrong and they have done really well at the end of the day you're making concessions on custody or collateralization um or ability to be censored or or things like that and and that's somewhat obvious to some people. I think there's some savvy market participants who know kind of what they're getting in bed with and some haven't, but there's this kind of saying that I like, which is decentralization doesn't matter until it does. <laughs> and I think we're kind of in one of those moments. We're kind of like at that inflection point where like OFAC happened and we're at the sort of like safe thresholds for like Lido in terms of their market share dominance. And people are asking a lot of smart questions, which is like, what happens when Lido can do things like multi-block MEV attacks. What happens when Lido has a 33% market share and can censor transactions? What happens when Coinbase's token decides that they want to KYC everyone on exit or, or you know, they can already blacklist addresses if they do certain activities? Like the market will wake up to that really quickly if they haven't already. And then guys, just a massive kind of tailwind for a purely decentralized, trustless, permissionless network. And I think Rocket Pool fits that beautifully. That's more of like the sort of like the social side, like just economically, it's also really efficient too, because they're not skimming to fund a treasury. Um, they're not spending a ton of money on a large team or like a large marketing budget. Like there's no rent seeking that happens. Right. And that's a little like a, I have this, I've had this conversation a few times and it, it can get a little uh, heated because it depends on how you just, how you define rent seeking. But yeah. I think the protocol itself is sort of perfectly efficient in terms of the commission goes directly to the node operators who are incentivized to do that as part of the boosted commission and then the sort of the liquid staking collateral holders or derivative holders then sort of pay that commission so it's the sort of like perfectly balanced marketplace that is designed to find equilibrium in terms of the um commission rate and there's interesting things that go, that go along with that like how collateralized they are with ether what is the sort of capital efficiency of the mini pools what is the commission rate that is sort of the equilibrium between demand and supply um anyways that's getting a little ahead of myself but like i think the, the marketplace dynamics are super cool and let um our ETH and rocket pool be like highly highly competitive to competitors because we don't have to like pay a treasury five percent of the commission or something like that yeah, that's really... Hopefully that answered the question. That was a little bit wandering. That's okay, though. It definitely gave a lot of good insights there about uh, what Rocket Pool does. So one of the things that people like to say is that Rocket Pool's main product is the RETH token. Yeah. And that is, you know, our product. And that's what we sell. And that's what the whole protocol is built around. So 
at the moment it has i think a five or six percent share of the liquid staking market and around two percent share just under two percent share of the overall um staking market so like did it come too late like what what why why is it so small like what's going on with it um yeah i, th I think the answer is that there you know we were late to market and there's a, like you pay a price for that and i think that was a, a conscious decision by the team the team is sort of famously you know risk averse and wants to do things the right way high quality high security and they think about things in a very different time frame than most people. And this is where they kind of clash with the community a little bit. The community wants progress on a day to week time frame, and the team is thinking about things in a years to decades time frame. So for them to take whatever it was six months to fully audit and test and everything and and come out come out to market late is no big deal for the team, and it and it scares the hell out of the community. And that's just a little bit of a clash that exists. And you know, it's a healthy debate. I won't really get into whether or not that's the right thing to do. But I, th I think ultimately our our position in the marketplace is having a low market share is probably directly a byproduct of, of just being late to market. And there's, there's other things too. There's other reasons. It's not the only reason, but I think that is the key, a key reason why it's only 5%. And 5% is also like fairly decent, by the way. But mm -hmm. um, I think it could be, it could be higher if, if the team was a little bit more aggressive with getting things up earlier but of course that means then trade-offs in terms of you know being mainnet ready and things like that yeah that makes sense okay so um i guess you know that explains why we uh, are smaller than lido and like other um like just overall we're quite small but what's happening now can you tell us a little bit about the things that you're working on mm -hmm. what the community is working on to make that bigger like what kind of things are you excited about yeah, I mean, so it's a two-sided marketplace, right? So there's node operators and there's liquid staking holders. So it, you sort of have to answer it on both sides, right? So you have to build capacity and growth on both sides of the equation for the protocol to fully grow. Otherwise, you're just bottlenecking one side of it. And Rocketpool has been sort of flip-flopped between bottlenecked on node operators versus bottlenecked on the RE side. And uh, let me, I guess, start with node operators because that's maybe easier to answer. Okay. Um, We've had a couple of, of kind of major developments on the node operator side that really very dramatically increase the capacity for node operators to like basically mint the liquid staking token. Um, part of it is just the protocol maturing and people like Marco joining with a large position. That's there's part of it you sort of get for free because you've proven after being alive on, on mainnet for whatever, almost a year, that this is secure and people can trust it and Lindy effects take, take place and, and people just are, are more comfortable using it, uh, especially for larger, for people, people who have a larger position, they want to see some level of kind of product maturity before they put a lot of, a lot of money in. They're they're not as likely to de to degen in. But more importantly, there is a lot of technical improvements um, that are really scaling up the node operator side. Um, and I wrote about this a little bit on Twitter. There's like three major things that I think are just major catalyzing forces for node operator uh, supply. The first one is is less ETH bonded mini pools. We talked about it a little bit. It's basically just reducing the number of ether you need to create a mini pool. So right now the plan is to go 16 to 8, which means instead of minting 
16 RETH rather than minting 24 RETH. So it's actually a 3x in terms of the supply for RETH for a given unit of, of Ether on the node operator side. Yeah. So that alone is, is a pretty dramatic improvement in terms of how much supply we can create from the node operators. There's also the SAS model, which I'll just give a short version, but we can get into more if you want. Like this is basically allowing different companies, institutions, and arrangements to participate in a kind of unique way that lets a lot of kind of capital flow and lets a lot of businesses be built on top of Rocket Pool. And that I think is also potentially a really large catalyst for node operator supply. And the last one is the sort of solo staker migration, which is a little bit of a, a wild card. I don't think anyone knows what to expect. I know Joe has a lot of really high hopes for what that can do. I, I do too. But yeah. what that is allowing is for people to basically convert very directly their solo staking validators to Rocket Pool. And there's a bunch of technical reasons why that can happen, but you can basically just direct your validator towards Rocket Pool and then make two or four validators. And then it's they get a they get a commission on that, they get RPL rewards on that. It's it's in their interest to do that because it's a great product. And that also could just once we get withdrawals, just directly create a ton of capacity on the node operator side. Um, so there's there's a lot going on there. Like we're already overflowing with node operators. There's a lot more people on the sidelines. There's a lot of technical improvements that are coming pretty soon. There's also at, um, withdrawals, which is sort of allowing the great reshuffling, which then can move node operators to Rocket Pool. So that is like a huge <laughs> tailwind for node operators. On the RE, so that's all technology, basically network effects. Yeah. Um, on the RE side, it's different, right? Because you don't you don't really solve that with technology as much. Really what gets us to grow on the RETH demand side is things like liquidity incentives to sort of like demonstrate liquidity depth at, at PEG. It's also really importantly, integrations in DeFi and use cases in DeFi. It's honestly pretty frustrating that we're like 10 or 11 months post-launch and there's basically nothing you can do with, with RETH. This is actually, I think, a remarkable statement for how valuable RETH is to the ecosystem. You can do nothing with it. You can hold it and you can look at your numbers every day, but that's all you can do with RETH. And it still has gotten 5% market share among mm. liquid staking. Um, really what people want to do is put it in LP positions. I guess you could do that currently, but mm -hmm. um, you know, to collateralize lending against it, to be able to do different kind of like interesting things with the token in the same way that you can do with Ether or Lido's STETH. So the path forward there anyways is liquidity incentives, which we just launched a few weeks ago, and DeFi integrations, which is sort of perpetually almost there. It's it's coming. Um, yeah. I think a lot will snowball once we get things like Chainlink, once we get things like Maker. Um, it's just, it's slow moving and it's been kind of frustrating at times, but th that's really where we are bottlenecked currently and, and where I think we will basically always be bottlenecked is demand for our staking token. But you said it earlier and it's very, it's very true. Our product in the marketplace is our ETH. It's, it's not being a node operator. I mean, it's two-sided, so you could say, sort of say yes, but to the to the marketplace, the product we offer is is our ETH, and I think we I think we lose sight of that a lot. To be honest, I think the community has this really heavy bias towards node operators for obvious reason, but it's we have to like step back and remind ourselves that like really what is driving this ecosystem is demand for our ETH, and I think we've been underrepresenting that pretty pretty strongly. So, um, can we delve a little bit deeper into like um, you know you kind of hinted at things happening with. Um, liquidity incentives 
and then you said like other integrations like maker and stuff so can we spend like a little while talking about liquidity incentives like sure. what is out there how does it work uh, what does it do like who is it for all that kind of stuff yeah so yeah. and yeah um, like um, caveat this is not my area of expertise um there's a committee that drives some of these decisions and you know i have opinions on them but i'm also not going to claim to be like the best person with like these kind of DeFi shenanigans but yeah. um what liquidity incentives is is it's a portion of the inflation budget that is allocated towards spending for um i guess sort of two things primarily it's meant for liquidity depth for the areth token which is a problem for people who want to get in and out of their position quickly and it's also, I think, secondarily to drive demand for the RETH token um, in, in terms of like uh, providing a higher yield and then that encourages greater participation um, in terms of getting the token. So we just started this like this month, so 20 days ago. Um, we are experimenting with a few different things. Primarily, our incentives are on balancer for the RETH, WETH pair and that has actually done a lot to to improve the sort of like depth and, and the, the tvl for for that pool um, balancer is great because it has this sort of like metastable function where it kind of defends and protects your peg at a certain rate that can shift like we've considered using curve but curve is sort of okay for this but they require some custom dev they don't want to do yeah and uniswap is okay but the peg will drift over time so there's been a bunch of different challenges um we're, we're putting primarily our funds on balancer we're also experimenting with doing kind of other unique ways of um, bootstrapping the network and providing liquidity. One of them is co-incentives, which we're kind of getting into a little bit. I can talk about that if you're curious. Um, another one is sort of like concentrated liquidity, which might be on Uniswap or somewhere else. But, you know, we're still like so new to this and exploring how do we sort of like best spend these funds because we want to be um, good stewards of that capital but we're still learning at the same time. So I think the early signs have been super promising because it has, like, first of all, we're back on peg, which is like mm -hmm. insanely great. And we have much greater liquidity depth. Like I, I ran this calc a few weeks ago for an article that I was quoted in and, and like our liquidity depth went up by like 80% after like four days of liquidity incentives. It's so crazy. How, how do you work out liquidity depth for those who don't know? Yeah, it's, I think the calculation is how many units of the token does it take to move the price by like 1% or yeah. maybe it's 2%. I forget. Like for a given percentage slippage, how many tokens do you have to transact to do that? And it was like 3000 and then it was like 5,000 tokens. So the, the liquidity depth went up really dramatically. And that matters because like slippage is sort of a hidden cost that, that people have, especially for larger players. Like they want to be able to feel like they can get into the position, out of the position without paying a hidden fee of like 3% slippage. Um, so it matters. It matters a lot. And it also just establishes trust with the peg and lets us defend the peg in a, in a really meaningful way. Great. So it's good to see that like more and more things have been happening on the RETH side. Um, you kind of said a few minutes ago that it's always like on the horizon, right? It's always been on the horizon. And, you know, we've been talking about all these things happening for months now. We kind of had a little bit of uh, liquidity incentives with Curve in March where, um, um, Tetranode provided some yeah. like uh, funds towards that and that was it and then it kind of didn't happen again until now we've been hearing about Maker for a while we've been hearing about Chainlink for a while so what's yeah. different now you know for people who are listening now why is what we're saying not just another version of oh, it's right around the corner it's right around the corner yeah, without yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you get what I'm trying to say like yeah yeah so what what's happening that you can share with us to kind of like 
show people that some things is actually happening now compared to us just saying it's right around the corner for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, none of this is, is private. Um, we've been in this sort of nasty chicken and egg situation for so long where the protocols don't want to list our token unless we have good liquidity depth and trading volume because it's just not worth their time otherwise. And so Chainlink didn't want to list us until we hit a certain minimum transaction volume per day. And Maker didn't want to list us until there was um, sort of enough demand for the, like enough supply of the token, enough holders, enough liquidity, uh, enough volume, I should say. And, you know, we've sort of been like, it's chicken and egg because we've been lacking the volume and liquidity because we don't have the integrations. We don't have the integrations because we're lacking the liquidity and volume. And so the community has felt strongly that the way to break out of that has been to sort of like bootstrap demand with liquidity incentives. And so to answer your question directly, I think the two things that have let us break out of that chicken and egg and what makes it actually happening this time is that for one, the merge happened. So APRs went up, execution risk went down. There's a lot of money, I think, flowing into staking or will continue to flow into staking. And then for two, we started actually bootstrapping with liquidity incentives. So that creates more trading volume and liquidity depth and all those things that these protocols want to see to list us, which then of course drives more demand. So it's it becomes like a circular, instead of being chicken and egg against us, so like a, a circular negative, it becomes a circular positive. It reinforces the flywheel. Itself. Flywheel, yes. That's yeah. a better way of, of saying yeah. it. So that's why I'm excited about that is that we have finally broken out of that that jail of not having enough demand or or whatever it is. And now that things are moving, I think a lot's going to happen fairly quickly and the flywheel will hopefully take off and, and it can be a little bit more of a self-sustaining demand model for yeah. the token. So the way that I would answer that question is, look, we kind of flirted with liquidity incentives in March and it wasn't sustainable at the time because it was just Tetranode providing it out of his own pocket and obviously he wasn't yeah. going to do that forever. But the thing that I would point people towards right now is say, look, we actually have this incentive that's live right now you can put your RETH WETH pair in balancer and get amazing rewards that far outstrip anything that you'd get as a node operator and also we would have um, beneficial tax um, positions because of that um, because you're just holding RETH you're not getting any income necessarily from the token itself so you know the tax situation is different and um, we actually are building up volume, building up trading. We're the only liquid staking token, as far as I know, that's actually like trading at a premium right now that's above its peg and not below its peg um, like other competitors are and they have been for the last few months. So yeah. those are the things that I would point out to say, look, this time is different because of all these reasons. And because we're actually showing this stuff now, it means that when we say this other stuff is happening, it actually lends some weight to that claim instead of just being like kind of like a hopium thing. Hey, Maker's coming. Hey, Chainlink's coming. Hey, yeah. is coming. Like, it, I know that, you know, people want to see it to believe it, but um, I guess that's why we're in a position where we have some alpha, right? There's a market, there's an asymmetry in the, in the market where we have information and people for some reason either don't believe us or don't like understand that. So how would yeah. you like... How would you position yourself in that sense to take advantage of it? Like this, this asymmetry that's there now. Um, I, I agree. I mean, the one thing I would add too is just that Chainlink in particular is such a gatekeeping force for everything we want to do. Like so many projects depend on Chainlink and that depends on volume. And we are, I think just now getting um, Chainlink listed soon. I don't exactly know when, but 
I mean, how to get positioned. Um, I, I think you're asking like, how do you take a speculative position on that informational asymmetry? Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I could argue RPL and I, I would argue <laughs> taking a position RPL because I think what we'll find is that demand for our ETH will grow because of all these integrations that I think are coming and that will necessarily create demand for RPL. That's a couple of like orders, but there's a couple of logical steps to get there. Um, absent that, you know, I think the obvious way to take advantage of it would be to just get our ETH, especially when it was under peg. I mean, now that we've repegged, there's probably less opportunity for it to like actually catch up and appreciate other than just yeah. the staking rewards. But um, I'm, just, I'm not sure that there's like a direct like way to play this necessarily except for just going long in the rocket pool ecosystem, which is basically buying the RPL token. Um, yeah, so that, <laughs> that's what I would do. <laughs> okay, so that's actually a really good transition point because let, let's talk about the RPL token, right? So we've talked about the RETH side and like people kind of talk about um, rocket pool as having three sides, right? There's one of the RETH side, one as a node operator side, and one as like the RPL speculator, speculator side or like just the RPL holder side. So... Um, we covered the RETH side quite nicely. So why don't we talk about that? One of the things that's happened recently is like anyone can see that the liquidity incentives and RETH going on peg and RETH minting, there's a really strong correlation between those two events. And like fairly sure that, you know, you can say that liquidity incentives have caused more minting to happen and have caused more people to buy our ETH and has caused the peg to go back. Like, you know, correlation, causation, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But I think it's fairly, from without doing the statistical analysis, I think it's fairly, very strong likelihood that the liquidity incentives caused the peg to come back and the mints to go up. So I guess my question next is that Balancer today in around, um, I think, 12, 13 hours time are starting a, uh, RPL RETH pool that they are providing huge liquidity incentives for. So what do you think will be the consequence of that? Because Thomas has been, um, has a wall set up right now on Uniswap, right? With the RPL RETH uh, pool. So what's the difference between what Thomas is doing and what Balance is doing and how, how what kind of impact do you think that will have on the RPL side? Yeah, I, I don't know is the honest answer. I mean, probably by the time this episode goes live, this will be live um i don't know we've never really experimented with incentives on on anything with rpl and and this is sort of like we didn't even ask for this this is just a, a total act yes. of generosity from balancer yeah. but i mean it sort of does a couple of things it, it it incentivizes sort of our eth depth because our eth is part of the liquidity pair and it also incentivizes rpl depth for the same reason and it also just provides sort of a boosted yield for people who want to take an LP position that is RPL RE. Yeah. So I would speculate that it will that it will increase liquidity depth for both of those tokens. And they will also just increase demand for both of those tokens. I don't know how much, I don't know how meaningful this is. It, this could be like a rounding error um, or it could be really meaningful. I, I, I don't know. I'm super curious to see how this plays out too. It's also like, just to be sort of like um, upfront about it, like it's not, necessarily recurring. Like this is kind of a one-time thing that Balancer provided. We're going to do some matching just because it's, it's a nice kind of way of, of kind of expressing thanks to them for doing this. And there's probably like a little trickle of, of incentives coming to that pair, but it's 
it's fairly short-lived, whereas like the other liquidity incentives are meant to be very long-running. Mm. And I think the market will kind of react to them differently, but I don't, I don't exactly know what to expect um, with that. I'm, I'm curious too. It's exciting though, right? Like that uh, people like Balancer, you know, we've made such a good partnership with them on layer one yeah. and even Beethoven on layer two. And like we've integrated with that ecosystem really well. So I think yeah. just they're just showing appreciation as well to say that maybe this is a, this is something valuable, but um, do you? Think- and you said something a second ago too. Like I, I, I do believe that liquidity incentives help return us to peg. Returning us to peg helps create our ETH demand. Our ETH demand helps create RPL demand. Like mm. that's a couple of steps, but yeah. I do firmly believe that, de- like demand for our ETH, directly equals demand for RPL, which is kind of why I'm excited about like um, among other reasons why I'm excited about, um, liquidity incentives. Yeah. Okay. The only caveat that I'd say is like, we sort of ran two experiments at once. So it's hard to disambiguate which mm. caused what, because we had the merge happen at about the same time that liquidity incentives started. Yeah. So we quickly got back on peg, which is great, but it's it's kind of hard to directly attribute whether that happened to the incentives or because of the merge or probably a combination of both, but we just don't really know. Yeah, I guess the argument that you could make is that Lido and Coinbase's ETH have gained on their pegs as well. They haven't gone yeah. back onto peg yet, but they've, some of their, discount has gone away that was there so i guess like i said correlation is not necessarily causation here so it's definitely um it's definitely a good good thing though that's happening so why don't we like actually spend a little bit of time now talking about the rocket pool token and talk about like this idea that you have of price versus value and um how those two things differentiate and like what you mean by that and like how that impacts the protocol yeah I mean, this is true for any token too, but there's always a, a sort of a separation of the value that a token has, which is really an expression of the fundamentals that it has, and the price that it is, which is some flavor of speculation. And speculation can either be like a positive force or a negative force. Like some tokens trade under their their fundamental value because the market is so beat up, and that's maybe happening right now with the market. I don't know, um, but it can also be a positive force. And so, for any given point in time, I think. Rocket Pool has fundamental value that is sort of asserted by its role as a utility token in the ecosystem. And it has this sort of price floor mechanic due to how collateral is done in the network. And then if you layer on top of that speculative layer, which you know people like to buy RPL to speculate on, it um it the, the the fundamentals are kind of like trickling up over time. Like the graph of fundamental value is just like up only, I would say, because it's basically a graph of, of the TVL. Like if you look at TVL, that is the graph of, of our, um, our RPL value, like the fundamental value. And the price is different than the value because the price is like that graph with speculative behavior layered on top of it. And so it's been interesting to watch like the price chart. Like I don't actually look at prices that often, but maybe I should actually pull it up. It's kind of funny to look at. There's like this interesting behavior where like it'll go like up because people get excited and then it comes back down to its fundamental value. I'm going to pull it up real quick because I kind of like yeah. this. I, I like, like the blind. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Actually, wait. I don't know if I can because I my Zoom thing is all kind of scrap. I'll describe it. So RPL, if you look at the RPL ETH chart, it's like this, but there's some blips where it goes like I, up like this. I can bring it up. I can bring it up. Sure. Can you, if you have it, if you have it handy. Um, I check it more frequently than you. Can, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Let me just share my screen. But you can you can see really clearly on the graph like where does speculative behavior take over and where do we return back to fundamentals? 
I'll let you. So, okay, so you if can you have it like on a daily time frame, yeah, early. I'm just getting down to that. Then yeah, we'll yeah. Just, uh, zoom out to like 90 days. So I think this is what shows it most clearly. Maybe actually 180 yeah, yeah. days. Yep. So this point here, where let me just see, is that 180 days? Yeah. So this point around here is where the market completely collapsed, right? In right. the beginning of June with like the implosion. And I think what you're saying is basically if you draw a line from here all the way along this trend line up here, this these periods here is what you're describing as like the yeah. periods of exuberance. So can you tell me a little bit about what you're seeing and like what? what... Yeah, and that, I agree. Like if you look at that chart starting from the market crash in June, it's basically a straight line up, right? Yeah. With some noise. And there's two bumps. The one, the first bump is when Thomas kind of famously came in and just like swept the floor and, and moved move the LP position up a little bit. And that caused yeah. quite a lot of excitement. Of course. And it was a great and day. The, second, the second one was, I think, just kind of general merge hype that happened. A few whales came in and did some big buys. But like you can clearly see like it bumps and it comes back to the to the trend line. Yeah. Which I think is at least to me, and this is how I'm interpreting it, and everyone can interpret it their own way. Like I interpret that as speculative value taking over momentarily and then kind of the speculative excitement goes away and it returns back to fundamental value. So it's kind of noise on top of this fundamental value that is like trickling up over time just because the TVL, the network goes up over time. So like, I kind of think about it as a separation of price and value, speculation versus fundamentals, but we'll see. That's This is all theory, theory crafting. I, I see how it plays out. Like I totally I understand that, you know, we can't read into it too much, but we have to, like kind of pay attention to the fact that in the depth of the bear market where everyone's full of despair and and kind of like scared and there's so much fear yeah. in the markets right now that like just a matter of weeks ago i think it was what here on september 10th so less than two weeks ago 10 days ago our uh, rpl hit its all-time high against eth on the on the ratio yeah. and there's very few tokens that first of all appreciate against ETH. That's just the first yeah. thing, right? Like everything is like down only against ETH on long enough timeline, but nothing is hitting all time highs right now uh, against ETH. Of course, you know, not in the US dollars because we're a little bit down from all time highs in US dollar terms, but against ETH, we're more valuable than we've ever been. Yeah. So do you think that is an effect of, you know, the protocol being battle tested and um, getting more like, Lindy effects are getting better and, you know, there's signs of the stuff that we talk about with the integrations and all that kind of stuff. Is it that, or is it just like, is this noise? Is this? No, else? I think it's, I think it's real. I mean, I, I think there's an indirect connection between those things you mentioned. I think the combination of forces that act as tailwinds for us are Lindy effects, um, merge happening, execution risk going down, APR going up, all of this just kind of creates a more conducive environment for our ETH to, to go up, like the, the, to mint, I should say, like the, the TVL of our ETH is going up over time, which very directly adds fundamental value to RPL. And so it's just sort of like a necessary outcome of the protocol growing. Like it's, it's very hard to make the case that the protocol will grow and RPL will not uh, appreciate along with it. Like there's just, because of the tokenomics and how they're structured. And we should maybe also talk about that. Like yeah. there's just a very direct connection between TVL growth and RPL appreciation. And so all these things are causing TVL to go up by, by virtue of our ETH being minted. Um, 
and that's just I think very necessarily creating demand for RPL. But it's you know again it's a couple of steps ap uh, apart from each other. You have to like start with these things that kind of give um, credibility to to RETH, and then the RETH demand coming in, and then RETH demand creating new node operators, and node operators need to collateralize with RPL. So there's like there's a logical chain of steps that happens, but suffice it to say that like our ETH demand equals RPL demand, and there has been our ETH demand, thankfully. Yeah, that's really exciting that that's happening now. So why don't we talk a little bit about the tokenomics and let's like you know go back to a point that you made a little bit earlier about LEB, um, the less ETH bonded mini pools. So talk a little bit about the tokenomics about where we stand now. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about how things are going to change after that yeah. update happens. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I don't actually think LEBs materially change the tokenomics because we're still the equation still exists such that uh, one unit of our ETH is collateralized by ten percent of of RPL, yeah. ten to one hundred fifty percent. So the actual mechanics haven't changed necessarily in terms of how we're collateralizing. Um, our ETH, and I, I don't actually think that LEB is, is a is a significant factor in terms of driving value. I think it protects the value, mm -hmm. but I, I kind of think of more LEBs as more like you have a certain total TVL that the protocol will capture, and that's some that's the combination of the node operators ETH and the R ETH holders ETH, mm -hmm. right? And LEBs just makes it more efficient for the node operators, so it shifts the equilibrium from being in the middle to being you know, more so dominated by the RETH holders because you can mint more RETH for, for you know, for a given node operator. Um, I think it does have some benefits. Um, I, I guess I think of, I think of LEBs a little bit differently. Um, so it, it's, it's a factor. I think it's, it's meaningful, but it just kind of shifts the equilibrium more towards kind of node operators. It, it, I don't think it has a direct kind of benefit to, to RPL. Okay, so that's fine. But why don't we then talk about the RPL tokenomics themselves? Yeah. Because a lot of people said, you know, the the ten percent thing when it was sixteen ETH that we borrowed from the RETH holders. Um, the idea was ten percent of that, so yeah. the the value will trend towards zero point one because it's ten percent of the ETH kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Like it was that. Can you explain? Yeah, kind of. yeah of course. I don't... Very I don't basic. know if I follow like I yeah. I don't know if I follow that particular line of thinking and maybe I'm just missing something. But one thing I like about about RPL is that it has very modelable kind of token value. And I, I talked about this in Bankless a little bit, but like you can directly express the value of RPL just given a few kind of assumptions. And I put out a spreadsheet that some people kind of like just with some with some assumptions. Um, but it's why, really like just yeah, why don't we share? Yeah, why don't we share that while we're talking about this? So sure, yeah. Um, let me share it on my side, and then we can share the screen so give me a second okay i'm, um, I'm also happy to pull it up too depending on I, got it. I got it i got it open right here um okay so there we go yeah so what was i going to say though so um i mean it's it's rpl is just very simply like uh it's driven by demand for the for the protocol overall um i've kind of put together a few assumptions here of like what i think contributes to that and how i think about this is like it's a it's a modelable value, and I like to sort of start with assumptions and work backwards to a price. Okay. And so I did this like I don't know months ago, a long time ago, and I started thinking in terms of what can Rocket Pool realistically look like in a couple of years. Um, specifically, the questions to ask are what percentage of the supply will be staked in its sort of like final state and its um, sort of plateau. We're still trending up in terms of staked. 
how many units of our ETH can we mint, which is basically a product of how much market share can we get? And then how collateralized are these node operators going to be? How much demand is there for RPL given their position of, of mini pools? And I think it's interesting to look at, like I put in the for reference column here just to show where we are currently. And then I sort of project that forward thinking like how much um, can we sort of capture and how much demand is there for RPL? And this is where like, it gets kind of, I don't mean to be a moon boy. I, meant to, I mean to be sort of like very uh, analytical about it. But yeah, I think like, if you look at my base column, I, I think these are actually reasonable assumptions that I would be happy to like argue and defend. I don't think this is like crazy moon boy math. Um, and just to, like list it out, I think we will trend towards a little over half of the total RPL supply being locked. I can get into why. Um, I think we'll probably get a couple of million total um, our ETH minted in, you know, in units of ether. Um, and I'm basically calculating that in the three rows below it. So I'm assuming we get total 50 million ether staked. I'm assuming rocket pool captures about seven and a half percent market share. And then I'm, there's an adjustment here for LEBs in terms of how much collateral is needed. Uh, that's kind of a minor factor, but it's, but it's there. And then the final one is there's an assumption on how collateralized these node operators are going to be. And currently we're at like 90%. And I'm happy to talk about this too. This gets to be a little like speculative and contentious and people disagree yeah. with me on this, but I, I believe pretty strongly we're going to stay at a high collateral rate. I put 60 in here. I actually think it'll be higher than 60, but I put 60 in just for the sake of not being totally degen moon boy about it. But like, I think those are, those are three assumptions. How much supply gets staked, how much TVL we can actually grow to and how collateralized node operators are going to be. I think I feel good about those, honestly. And if you take those assumptions as valid, the, the formula projects a price of 0.15, right? So that's like a whatever, yeah. 7x, 8x from where we are right now. Um, that's against pretty meaningful ETH. against ETH. And it's yeah. like you said a second ago, it's tokens don't usually appreciate against Ether. And to be clear, like, I don't like tokens. I like yeah. I like Ether. My, my portfolio is denominated in Ether and I don't typically hold tokens. Um, and at the risk of sounding super naive, like I think RPL is different because <laughs> everyone says that, but I actually think that staking has a lot of intrinsic value for Ethereum and yeah. Rocket Pool has a very unique way of capturing value in the form of RPL demand for the token. So it's well, probably a naive thing to say, but I, th I think I think RPL is different. I think it has a lot of potential for growth. Well, one of the clearest ways that RPL is different is by maybe moving on to like the node operator side of things is if you hold RPL, it unlocks higher rewards in ETH terms, right? So if you yep. are an ETH maxi, you basically you buy, um, you set up your node at 16 ETH, you borrow 16 ETH from the protocol, you go in at the minimum number of 1.6 ETH worth of RPL. And mm -hmm. in your mind, you can just think of that as a sunk cost, right? If you leave yep. your node running long enough that in itself you could totally discount that this is like a ticket to entry almost you yep. discount that it's a loss cost <clears throat> but that 15 percent that you gain year on year over regular solo staking that will eventually cover that and more right like yeah did you ever run the numbers on that about yeah, how yeah. long it would take to break and i would also in? add Yes, uh, I'd also add that it gets more appealing with LEBs because you're effectively capturing more commission on a more ether. So exactly. it just it's a multiplicative thing, which is one of the reasons why LEBs is such a big deal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I totally I totally agree. Like if if you assume that node operators 
are rational actors who are just seeking to optimize their yields, then mm -hmm. this is the right move. And I, like I run solo staking and rocket pool mini pools, and like I feel pretty strongly for using rocket pool. I mean, obviously, like I'm, I drank the Kool Aid, but um, yeah, I think you said it great, which is like if you're looking to capture yield, then you should just think of RPL as a sunk cost. You should accept that as the cost of getting extra commission and you get RPL rewards on top of that, which is sort of an added bonus. But even and if I think it goes that, to zero, right? You still, as long as you keep your node running, you'll still keep getting those ETH rewards. Yeah. Uh, yeah so if you have a long yeah. enough time horizon, you can assume that RPL goes to zero and you'll still end up positive versus exactly. solo staking. And I don't know, I don't know how many years that is, but I did some, if you click on the, the RPL versus ETH yield bearing power. I've done some like, this is kind of just napkin math, but yeah. I've done some math to kind of indicate how powerful is RPL in terms of its ability to capture yield. And I think it's about, right now it's two and a half times more powerful um, than Ether. And this gets to be a little heady. It's kind of hard to describe, but like the argument here is that RPL is sort of a form of leveraged yield for Ether because not only does it unlock commission on more Ether, but it also gives you rewards on top of it. So you can take a few different factors and think about it purely in terms of ether. And it's just a really powerful force for capturing yield from for staking yields from, yeah. from Ethereum. One of the interesting things is um, looking at rocket scan and seeing why people's percentages of, you know, their collateralization percentages, because we're close to the all time high, I think we're like seven or 6% off the all time high in ETH ratio, not one single person now is at the minimum collateral level because yeah. of the ratio appreciation, their percentage of collateral has gone up. They can't withdraw that until it reaches 150%. So if, you know, Rocket Pool does 5X or 7X from here, then those people will start being able to skim from the top. But they are getting great returns on their RPL tokens, even if they think of it as a sum cost, that money's still there, right? Like it's, it's a... I think that's a really, really good way of looking at it is yeah. um, it's a, the best ticket to higher yields because you're not going to get those yields in any other way, shape or form. Yeah. And, and for the record, I think I think new node operators will almost always enter at minimum collateral because yeah. by definition, they are not like super long on Rocket Pool, the protocol. Otherwise, they would have been part of the community already. I mean, some will, yeah. but... For the most part, I'm assuming that new node operators basically enter at like 15% average um, collateral. And so you can make the argument that collateralization is artificially high because we've attracted all the sort of like diehard RPL people already into the community. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I, I would actually argue against that because I think there's competing forces for the collateralization. And I, I talked about this on, on Bankless a little bit, but like people will enter at minimum collateral. Yeah. which will just naturally push the average collateralization down. That's a downward yeah. pressure on average collateralization. At the same time though, like for them to enter the ecosystem, they have to buy RPL, which has to appreciate RPL against Ether, which yeah. means that it raises the collateralization for everyone else. And so you have these sort of two forces. One is trending down and one is trending up. Um, but I, I don't know, like I've seen, I've seen some analysis that RPL will just trend down to like 10% collateral. And I just have, I have a hard time seeing that. Millions of ETH added at 10% collateral for the collateral overall to go down towards 10%. And like you said, there's no way that that won't move the price because you can't just, 
But unless you're like Patricio or like the team who have a big chunk of RPL that's unstaked, there's no way for you to get those amounts of RPL to bring the percentage down to 10%. Like it's just impossible right now because yeah. of so many people being at higher percentages. So the right now we're at like what, like 80 Five percent, ninety percent, something like that. Yeah, it says it here eighty-eight point seven. Is that number eighty? Is that up, up to date? Is it? I think I updated it yesterday, so it's. Oh, okay, yeah. At least so, pretty up to date, yeah. Yeah, so we would have to get not even double, but quadruple the number of people we have now coming in at ten percent to for the number to even meaningfully move down to like yeah. below below like twenty percent. So. I think and then if that actually, happened, you also have a price floor effect where people would become under collateralized and have to buy RPL to, to get to 10% collateral, assuming they, they want to. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yep. But that's not going to happen, right? Like it's, well, I, I don't want to like, you know, not financial advice, all that kind of stuff. But just from, just from thinking about it, it's just the numbers just don't make sense. Like to think of it any other way than the collateral being high. I can't see it going under 50%. Like I know that you over here, you have that as a conservative case and even the bearish case, like 40%, I think will be unheard of, right? Like, it's I would just, agree. I, like from in my mind, that is kind of impossible. In my mind, uh, ETH, 30 million ETH staked, definitely I think is quite bearish. Like those numbers. And even with that appreciation, we still get the... Our ETH price, sorry, the RPL ETH price at 0.02, which is kind of where we were last week, right? So yeah. that's without assuming any further growth. And like looking at the chart that we were looking at earlier, it's just showing the line, the TVL line with speculation and TVL can't go up without price appreciation of RPL going up. So this is the, the what we said earlier about um, how you kind of like um, speculate on this if you want the returns that could possibly happen, then the RPL token is that is that vehicle, right? Like it, yeah. it, it's the one that's going to capture all the growth of our ETH, all the integrations of our ETH, all the node operators that are running it, whether maybe we can come to that next about what that might look like in the, in the next few months. But that's the RPL token is the one that's going to capture all those and like multiply the value and, and, appreciate really nicely so these numbers one, one of the things i want to ask you is so over here we have you know the projected price multiple and the actual ratio is right here so what kind of time frame do you think this will happen over and how how do you see us getting to there yeah and i should note by the way like this is i, I sort of shared this just as a framework so like there's numbers in here that i kind of believe in yeah but you know, I think it's healthy to sort of like do your own thinking about yeah. how much market share can can I get? What is the collateral rate going to be? And so, like anyone's welcome to sort of copy this and tweak numbers. But I mean, I would I would argue, like you said, even the, in the most conservative case, there's a ton of room for appreciation, which the investor in me is excited about, right? Yeah. Um, what was your question? I already lost. I, I was lost thinking my train um, of about the timeframes. Sorry. Yeah, time frame. Time frame. Yeah. When? Yeah. When, yeah. When does I, this happen? I, I, I think this is like 18 months, two years is kind of where, where I'm thinking. Um, and the reason why is because I think the big event that changes everything is withdrawals mm -hmm. and the merge will help. We're still seeing how this is going to change things with the merge. I think the merge is a, is a massively beneficial event for us to grow rocket pool. I think withdrawals is just like way more dramatically powerful than, than the merge is. 
it lets capital reshuffle. It, it sort of reduces risk to zero because you, the whole cycle is now full circle. You can you can stake, you can unstake. You know, it lets institutions do things without having to worry about like, will I ever get my funds back? Yeah. It's a very accessible investment vehicle, and I think we see staking participation go way way up. Um, and the nice thing is that this will happen at the same time. I hope as greater capital efficiency for Rocket Pool, um, greater integrations for the token, strong Lindy effects, because we'll have been alive for about a year or longer at that point. But like, I think everything is coming together in my mind, at least in my sort of idealistic um, picture of how things will hopefully go around withdrawals. And I think withdrawals then becomes the major catalyzing event that drives demand for Rocket Pool. Um, so that's, let's say six months out. I think there's some discussions about it happening in Q1, Q2, we'll see. Yeah. Um, it was six to 12 months. Now I think it's maybe people are thinking six months. Once that happens, I think basically give us a year's worth of growth to kind of saturate the market. And I would sort of imagine hitting some of these, like I think the peak RPL fundamental value happens in like 18 months. So that's kind of my time frame. It could be 12 months. It could be two years. I don't I don't really know, but that's just kind of ballpark. And that number so, will change depending on how things kind of play out. It's interesting because like, you know, all these TA bros who kind of like, like drawing lines and triangles and stuff, they have this idea of the next bull run kind of happening around that time, right? And if market um, forces kind of um, overlap with fundamental forces, could there be a case that <clears throat> like the speculative multiple increases not just a fundamental sure. multiple. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is this is this is an attempt to to um, capture fundamental value. So, I'm, yeah, specifically in this in this document, I'm not attributing any value to speculation. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't. I, I ultimately think speculation is is a it's a wash over a period of time. So I don't, yeah. I don't like to include that. But you're right. I mean, if you believe that the market will be more favorable in eighteen months, whatever it is. And that creates another speculative boom like we've had in the past, then you know, you could consider these kind of conservative numbers. Um, and people might want to speculate and add speculative value on top of this. I, in a previous iteration, I had like a a column for that, but I decided to take it out because I don't really like to assume anything about, about speculative value. But no, I I agree. I think that's a way of looking at it. I also would be really hesitant to assume anything about general kind of bull or bear markets in a mm -hmm. broader sense. Like it could be that we go straight up from here. It could yeah. be that we stay depressed for three for three years in terms of prices. I, I just don't know. But sure. Yeah. I agree. But as long as people are staking, then this and and then obviously staking with Rocket Pool, then this kind of makes it yeah. more true, right? As that's the main thing that we need to keep driving is that people keep staking, people keep staking yeah. with Rocket Pool. And if that happens, then these numbers, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way because the, all the numbers just line up. It's the equation, it's a balancing act. And if yeah. you keep ramping up the input, then the output goes up too. So that I think is what's really exciting. And um, I really like that the Rocket Pool as a protocol, the team and like the community, we're kind of, pushing for these things to happen around withdrawals, which is what we see as like the next big step, right? The next big benchmark and um, Atlas is going through and, you know, hopefully when these future future calls, I'll have a member from the team on here and tell me about Atlas and what's happening with all that stuff. So maybe we won't go into it yeah. too much, but um, I feel like there's a, a harmony taking place like kind of musical notes coming together where the Ethereum, the protocol is kind of coming into harmony with 
rocket pools uh, development and like efficiency improvements and like yeah. the crescendo that hopefully will be reaching if it's timed right for us will be will be like music right like it'll be absolutely beautiful and that hopefully will be in six months time like with atlas and with withdrawals um what kind of things maybe we haven't talked about node operators at all really like very little and we, you're a node operator i'm a node operator i guess you know a lot of our listeners as you said the rock and pull community in discord is kind of skewed towards node operators and yeah less so towards our wreath holders so maybe you know we can just gloss over that a little bit but um what kind of things do you think kind of break this uh, thesis or this projection yeah yeah kind of- no it's a, it's a good question i mean you should always ask yourself like what can go wrong and what are the risks and i think you actually mentioned a few of them like there the spreadsheet is like a bunch of baked in assumptions obviously it depends on ethereum the network growing and gaining Mm -hmm. value and staking you know being a way that that has value it depends on um rpl being adopted and you or sorry rocket pool being adopted and used and tvl growing it depends on there being enough demand for um rpl collateral that I think sort of has to exist, but you could still argue that maybe it doesn't need to exist. And it also assumes like basically no tokenomics changes. Like, you know, for all we know that tokenomics could change and maybe the, maybe the maximum RPL collateral is 10%, you know, that could change things meaningfully. So th- there's yes. risks in terms of like broader network market risk. There's risk in terms of like tokenomics that might change. There's risk, yeah, in, in every kind of like, item here has its own, you can, you could argue it in either case. Um, so yeah, I mean, take that for what it's worth. This is like a couple levels into assumptions. Like I'm, I'm assuming, and this is my investment thesis as a person that yeah. Ethereum will grow and, and attract value, that staking will continue to be valuable and adopted by the community, that liquid staking will be popular and grow market share and that rocket pool will grow market share within that. So that's like four levels of nested assumptions in one. And if any one of those isn't true, then things kind of fall apart, right? So there's some risk there for sure. Um, I feel good about it. It's part of my conviction, part of my kind of personal thesis. Yeah. But you know, it's also important not to just have tunnel vision and assume everything goes to plan because that's not, not how the world works, right? Of course. But I think one of the things that, like going back to like who you are as a person and like, you know, the chat that we were having earlier about like the whale, the status and stuff. I guess when, when you put out numbers like this, people kind of listen to you in a way because they can see that you've literally locked up millions of dollars worth of ETH and RPL. And that kind of adds, like you've kind of put your money where your mouth is. You know what I mean? And like, you've kind of got this idea and this thesis of what values are going in. And then you've invested in that in a way that's very visible for, anyone who wants to look like you know your um your ens name is like your node and anyone can come and find find your node and see exactly how what your uh, rewards are what your rpl is what your eth is how many mini pools you're running so how do you think that impacts like this spreadsheet that you've made do you think it adds anything to that do you think it takes anything away from that um i think it i don't know i think the community thinks it gives it some credibility yeah. when it i mean i I don't think it does. Like I'm just a dude with an, with opinions, right? So like just the fact that I have a larger set of of uh, mini pools, I don't think changes my ability to project things any better than anyone else's. So like sure. I wouldn't give myself too much credit. I think you know 
you could argue the other case, and this is me being a little bit of a contrarian, you could argue that like I have heavy bag bias. So I'm mm-hmm. seeing things through rose-colored glasses and and not being objective about things. And I ask myself that question a lot. Like, am I have I drank too much of the Kool-Aid? Am I not being objective? Am I missing something obvious? Um, and I, I don't think so, but like I think that's just a healthy way to think about things too, because it's it is so easy, especially in crypto, to have bag bias and to assume things will go a certain way and they don't. Um but yeah, I, you know, I think me specifically having demonstrated some skin in the game, I think people like that because it sort of mm-hmm. gives confidence to to what they want to do. I mean, everyone loves to, to hear kind of optimistic takes too. Um, it's just like kind of fun, you know, mental masturbation about like wh- where things could go. So it's yeah. kind of appealing to people's biases. And, you know, I'm also not immune to that, right? Like we're of humans. It's, it's fun yeah. to project and think about things. Um, but I, I don't think that me or my position really changes things much and like by the way there's other people who are just as visible who have many times more like mm-hmm. mini pools and everything so yeah i don't think i'm that unique either necessarily sure of course yeah um okay so um you mentioned it so why don't we we go with that so we've been talking for quite a while so i think um you've kind of got this reputation in discord a little bit for like you know muscles bullish comment of the day <laughs> so why why don't we end with a little bit of mental masturbation and kind of kind of see what it might look like for all the stars to align so can you share like from the RE perspective from the node operator perspective from the RPL perspective what kind of things do you think you'll see in the next six months in the next year that will just be like this is bullish, this is bullish, this is bullish, and all the bullish things multiplying together. So can we can we do that for a second? So let's You're just about... begging for some bullishness right now. Of course, of <laughs> course. Like, I love it. You know how I'm like permeable as well. So um, why don't we why don't we talk about the RE side first? What things need to happen for you to be like mega bullish in RE? Yeah, I mean, I think we've covered like all of it. Um, I think for me to be Bull- I almost want to answer it in the negative. Like what would make me, because I am like my default position is bullish. So yeah. I almost want to answer it. Like what would make me not be bullish, but I'll try to answer it the way you asked. Um, what would make me really bullish on the, on the RE side? Um, the merge driving additional adoption. Okay. Withdrawals happening and removing execution risk. There being increased awareness on centralization of large operators like Lido and Coinbase and Kraken and others. I think there's a nice kind of healthy push for decentralization right now that I, I hope will keep going. Yeah. Um, obviously integrations to make the token really, really useful and attractive to people. Also liquidity incentives proving to be valuable and sort of reflexive in the sense that like, I think they can kind of drive the flywheel and really get things going. All those things, I think if it comes together the way that I am sort of imagining, it can just be a hugely powerful demand driver for our ETH demand that I think can get us to some of these numbers that I'm sort of thinking it can. So like what kind of volume numbers or what kind of like unique holders or are there any metrics that you'll be looking out for to see if that's happening the way you think? I'm looking most closely at integrations because I I really think that a huge missing piece of the puzzle is, is integrations. Um, and maybe I'll say two things about this real quick. One is that people have a lot of ether and collateral positions, you know, CDPs, leverage positions, things like that. And I think 
there's a, there's a natural preference to use staking products rather than ether, just because then it's yield bearing and that sort of self repays the loan over time. And I think we're missing out on a huge part of the market by not having a collateralized platform or a lending platform like Maker or Aave or whatever. I think that'll come soon. That's one thing I'm yeah. looking at really closely. I also have this theory that when withdrawals happens, there will be a really powerful leverage factor similar to what happened with Lido's STETH. So this gets a little specific, but Lido's growth was very much dominated, at least kind of in, in the middle stages with um, people going long STETH. ETH. They'd go to Aave, lend STETH, borrow ETH, convert it to STETH, deposit it, borrow ETH, you know, kind of circular thing. And, and Aave let you do some crazy things with leverage. And this is why STETH blew up as badly as it did. You could yeah. take something like a 30X leverage on STETH ETH. So what that basically means is your your yield as a as a person who's doing this is the staking rate minus the borrow rate times 30. Really, really powerful. Yeah. Um, and it also has some tail risk to it, obviously, because it lost its peg, it blew up, yeah. people were forced sellers, it, it kind of blew up pretty spectacularly. But I think that changes really meaningfully with withdrawals because then the peg has a natural way of defending itself. So there's very little tail risk, very little ability for it to depeg and blow up. And so this idea, it wasn't a bad idea. It just had sort of hidden risk. I think there's this really powerful force that when withdrawals happens, we can defend the peg and we can safely enable high leverage on our ETH ETH and yeah. then let people basically capture the staking rate minus the borrow rate times 30 or whatever, some some insane number if they want to be degens about it. Um, yeah. That's something that I'm, it's kind of a personal theory of mine, and I'm really keen to see how that plays out. Um, yeah. Okay, so now let's talk about the node operator side because we've really <laughs> skimmed over that. So, what kind of things <laughs> need to happen there for you to be like super mega bullish? I, I mean, I can answer the question. I'm, I'm honestly not. This may be a naive thing to say. I'm not really worried about RE, or about node operator demand, mm. um, because I know we already have a huge surplus of node operators. It just got a lot more appealing to be a node operator and it will continue to get more appealing just naturally with things like withdrawals. Um, and we also have really powerful capacity building forces like LEDs and solo staker migration and SaaS. So, I mean, to be specific about your question, I'm looking for LEDs to land, SaaS to exist, and for solo stakers to be able to migrate to Rocket Pool. I think each one of those three things is really powerful, but even if one or two of them didn't happen, I'm I'm much I I think our bottleneck is very clearly on the R8 side and much mm -hmm. less so on the on the node operator side. So um I could be wrong, but I'm less worried about that. But to be clear, I'm looking for those things to kind of land. Yeah. Okay. And then with the RPL side, like other than the collateralization percentage, is there anything that really impacts that bullishness? No. Our RPL is downstream of all this. So there's yeah. Like if those things go to plan, if mm -hmm. we get demand for our ETH, that equals demand for RPL. So there's yeah. no like additional assumption I'm taking about like, oh, node, uh, node operators have to like RPL or something. As far as I'm concerned, the demand for RPL is solved in the tokenomics and it'll just be a downstream product of the protocol growing. So there's no additional thing I would kind of call out there. Okay. Okay. And I guess I can ask one last question to wrap it up. Um, when are you planning on selling so we can front run you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, like, yeah, I mean, it, it's a fair question. Um, I know you're kind of asking it in jest, but it, it's a fair question. Like, I, I, like right now, 
yeah. I believe in these numbers, at least moderately that, that yeah. you have up on the screen. Um, so I will think about trimming positions probably at point one. You know, that's like the five X up, up from here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at some point there will be, I'll be a forced seller just to reallocate to a more sensible uh, allocation and for mm. taxes. So like yeah. everyone who buys is a seller at one point, like it's, it's an inevitability. So I'm not going to say I'm never going to sell because that's just of course. being intellectually dishonest, yeah. but I'm not in a position to like, I'm not taking any short-term speculative positions here. Like mm -hmm. I think this is a two-year play. I think there was a, a five to 20 X in terms of RPL price appreciation against ether. I also think ether is going to go up in value quite a bit, but that's kind of like tangential to the point. Yeah. Like I've made comments in discord, how like, I think ether against USD is a 10 X. I think RPL against ether is a 10 X. And I genuinely, genuinely believe that to be true. So you said that around when the price was um, 0 0.01, I think at $20. So, yeah. and, and ETH was around $2,000. So yeah. just to put some numbers on it, you think ETH to 20K, RPL to 2K, um, and then a bunch of us will be like, well, you're already a millionaire, <laughs> but a bunch of the rest of us will be millionaires. That's, uh, then we're talking about islands, buddy. The, seriously, I'm like, I'm already saying, I'm going to come and build a little shack on your island and I'm just going to stay there. But maybe the, wha just, the whack shack. It's yeah, perfect. The whack shack. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, but my no, I mean, buying I, an island. So I, we're all, that's we're not, that's optimistic. Yeah. Those numbers are optimistic. But like from a speculative position as an investor, mm -hmm. I'm here for $20,000 Ether. Yeah. I'm here for 0.1 on the ratio, mm -hmm. which is 2,000. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, that's my rough target and that's going to change as more information becomes known, but that's just kind of how I'm thinking about things today. But, you know, it's very dynamic. Things are changing a lot. I, I don't put a lot of value into any kind of crypto projection that is more than like weeks out. So yeah. things will change. For all we know, there's a new competitor who's amazing. For all we know, DBT changes the name of the game dramatically. Mm. For all we know, there's a big bug and something crashes dramatically. Like, you know, you never know. And, and I would hate to be too confident about anything. But um, yeah, hopefully that answers somewhat like kind of what I'm thinking, what I'm looking for. I really hope that, um, you know, the community's urge for bullishness has been satiated by this interview, <laughs> this call. Because um, it's, 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 unabating it never never ends like it's just they they just want more and more of it and they'll suck the bullishness dry out of you but um i hope that they got a bit of a hit from this um i really enjoyed speaking to you and um i really enjoyed like getting to know you as a person outside of the community i'm mean, like in in person i mean but also like just how much like the community values your thoughts and opinions and like kind of trusts you in a way and i think that is um it speaks to the fact that you you're a nice guy you know like and like you're not that much of an asshole and sorry a little but, bit of um, times <laughs> that's what i said not that much i didn't say the, not the right that amount much. of being an asshole <laughs> yeah. hopefully yeah uh not that much uh the right amount but <laughs> i think i think you know you've got a lot of respect in the community and i respect you a lot and i really want to thank you for coming here today and like being the guinea pig for my first interview and uh, I've really enjoyed it after the brief technical issues that we had in the beginning, but um, I really enjoyed it. And I think, I think it's, I think our, the people who watch this are going to get a lot of value out of it too. And if nothing else, it'll speak to their bad bias. Right. So that, that, 
that works but um yeah is it, no it was fun it, thanks for having me on and and yeah, yeah. i appreciate being i appreciate all the coverage too you even talked about me a bit on, on rocket fuel and yeah that's great well, to see every you. day <laughs> pretty much <laughs> but that, that's what I, that's what i'm trying to say right is like um the community like values your your contributions a lot like tremendously and it, it's the fact that you're on rocket fuel every day is because you make valuable contributions and that's noticed and people really like respond positively to that so um i'm glad that you came on here maybe yeah. we can maybe we can we can do another one of these like in six months or a year's time just to see where we stand and like we can see how things have changed but um i think this is going to become a semi-regular thing for me like maybe every few weeks or every month or so i'll yeah. be having interviews and i think it'll be really nice going forward for yeah it'd be cool to check in and just kind of ask like what's changed you know because things change so much like in mm -hmm. six months we do another one of these and just talk about what like what is the delta between this episode yeah. and the next one that might be kind of fun to do i think so i think that'd be really good so um, cool, man. thank you so much for everything and um, i'll see you later in discord yeah sounds good <laughs> okay Take bye care.